MailChimp presents. As a marketer, you're speaking to a vast audience. Some people need to be converted into customers, some need to be reunited with their carts, and others have just made a purchase. But when you fail to segment your audience and personalize your messaging, you can get what's called a customer. One big cluster of customers who may seem alike, but actually all have different behaviors. So how do you turn those customers back into customers? With Intuit MailChimp, you can use personalization tools that segment customers into groups, break them up into like-minded target audiences, and send them personalized marketing. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. Availability of features and functionality vary by plan, which are subject to change. If the expectation was that I suddenly become a new person, this was not going to work. But if I could be me, if I could be the mom who invites spontaneity, if I could be the mom who could interrupt the routine, who gets to make things fun, right? If I can be that mom, let's do this. Austin Channing Brown is the CEO of Herself Media and the New York Times bestselling author of I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. She brings her powerful perspectives on race and womanhood across the country as a public speaker. And as an ordained minister, she bridges faith and social justice in her talks and guest sermons. I want to talk to the people of color in the room. Is that okay? People of color are people and also have an evolving faith. Our evolving faith has to answer some tough questions about history some tough questions about the present. She's also a good friend of mine. Before I met Austin, I'd already fallen in love with her writing, speaking, and advocacy. She's the kind of person who will drop wisdom on you exactly when you need to hear it most. And when it came time for Austin to decide whether she wanted kids, she faced questions that I am deeply familiar with. Can I live up to the expectations of motherhood? Am I destined to repeat the mistakes I witnessed growing up? I'm Ashley C. Ford, and this is Going Through It, a show about important moments in people's lives and how they navigate them. This season, we're asking how people decide whether or not to become parents. In this episode, I'm talking to author and activist Austin Channing Brown. For Austin, making that decision took a long time. She and her husband were married for eight years before they were sure. As she grappled with what she wanted, a friend in her faith community did for Austin what she usually does for others, drop some wisdom exactly when she needed it. So, of course, over those eight years, there were lots of questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think our family members, you know, the first year, they were like golden. Second year, okay. Ashley, you know Black women. By the third year, people are telling me about the dreams they had of fish. <laughs> <laughs> 
by year four, I think people were really starting to wonder, like, is something wrong with her? Like, can she not have kids? Is this a purposeful decision? Right. (laughs) Right. You know? And so those conversations in some ways spurred additional conversations between us. And so the conversation was sort of remained open, but there was just like, not ready, not ready, not ready, not ready. And I meet this amazing group of women who are pastors and we fall in love with each other. There's probably seven or eight of us. And we decide that we're going to take a little retreat, all of us together, once a year, just an annual retreat. We get this grant money to be able to go to Florida and just hang out on the Gulf Coast of Florida for like a weekend. And so we're on the plane, and one of my pastor friends very gently says, so what are you thinking? Are you are you interested in kids? Are kids not for you? Right? But she really wants the honest answer, right? She's not looking to talk me into anything, right? And I say to her, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared. There is a child in me who is really afraid that I will either regret or resent having children mm. and that those could be my only two options. And she looked at me, Ashley, and she said, tell me about your marriage compared to your parents' marriage. Mm. Are they the same? And I laughed because they're so different. Right. (laughs) Laughed so hard. (laughs) It's like, no, can't say that they're similar. And she said, Austin, being a mother will be the same thing. She was like, you are not destined to repeat what you saw. You will decide for yourself what kind of mother you want to be and how you will raise a child. And Ashley, when I tell you I could have burst into tears, it felt like such a weight had been like a just a moment of relief. Like the the sigh you just breathed out was what my whole body felt. And I realized for the first time, Ashley, that I had never actually asked myself whether or not I want to have kids. I was asking myself, could I ever do this well? Right. Am I destined to repeat what I experienced? I had never let myself want to want kids. Wow. What did you experience as a kid that made you feel like you wouldn't be a good parent? My parents got divorced when I was eight years old. Mm. I had no idea that there were problems in their marriage. They never fought. They never yelled at each other. I had absolutely no clue that anything was wrong. And I'll never forget, I was wrestling with my brother in the floor. We weren't actually wrestling. We were doing that thing where you pretend to be gymnasts. And so he was like balancing on my feet, you know, (laughs) tumbling to the floor. And there was a thud as he hit the floor. And then I hear my dad go, guys, get upstairs. And I was like, oh no, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. (laughs) What did we do? And that was actually the moment when they told us that they were getting a divorce. 
Wow. And that my mom would go live in Cleveland, Ohio. We were in Toledo, Ohio. And she would go live with my grandmother, her mom. Uh-huh. And that my brother and I would stay and live with my dad and continue to go to the same school, but that we would visit my mom regularly. Wow. I was absolutely shocked. But because my parents were so calm about it, I thought, sure, okay, if that's what's been decided, then I guess that's what we're going to do. And how did that work? It was so much harder than I ever imagined it would be. One of the moments that I've replayed a lot in my adulthood is the last time that I ever saw my mom standing in our kitchen. Mm. It's just her body being in the kitchen and my arms wrapped around her and not wanting to let go because I knew this would be the last time I would come down the stairs and find her in the kitchen. Not only did my parents get divorced when I was eight, but then my dad remarried. He was dating a woman who he had a child with. So he has my half-sister. And then a year after my sister is born, they get married. So within two years, I have gone from your average four-person family unit (laughs) to my mom living in a different city, living with my dad, a half-sister, my stepmom and my little brother is the only one who's like consistent because he's he's with me. Yeah. Right? So we are like navigating all of this together. And of course, because my mom is now single, she is also dating and remarrying. And Ashley, when I tell you, <laughs> I was so disoriented. And I, I want to walk the line between being careful and gentle and truthful. Mm-hmm. All of my parents were going through it. My mom was going through it because she was a mother who wasn't raising her kids. Right. And she really wanted us. But because she didn't have us, she also had to create a life for herself that we didn't exist in and that we sort of popped in and out every so often. And there were absolutely times when it felt as if her life had continued on without us. It felt like we were an inconvenience. If she wanted to go out or she had a really important date, she could just switch weekends. Right. Because that was convenient. So that was a weird thing to navigate. And then my my poor stepmom, she went from being a single 30-year-old woman with her own income, doing whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted to being a mom of her own child, who's an infant, right? Plus two kids. And now her income is going to my education. Right. And it's not hard to imagine (laughs) how extraordinarily difficult that was for her. Oh, yeah. A breeding ground for resentment. Mm -hmm. And so these were the two households that I was juggling, one in which it felt like there was a lot of bitterness and resentment and anger with like moments of joy, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Depression, anxiety, right? Like all of these things were so present. And then I would go visit my mom and feel like, but do I actually belong here either? Right. I'm just not sure. I knew that there were a lot of things that I was experiencing that was not normal. Mm -hmm. But I had to adjust. 
I had to figure out how to cope with what my normal was, even if I knew that wasn't everybody else's normal. Okay, so as a kid, you saw how your parents' relationship didn't mesh and how that affected you and your family. Tell me about your husband. What feels different about this relationship? Uh, My husband is the most wonderful human. I really like him. I probably tell him that I like him more often than I tell him that I love him. I really like who he is. He is always looking to acknowledge the humanity of people. And there is no one who has been a greater recipient of that than me. There were so many ways, big and small, that I didn't realize I was still holding on to until I became married. Like one of the like small big ones mm-hmm. <laughs> is how quiet I am because I learned to retreat into myself. I've learned how to hide. I'm really good at hiding. There are people who walk into a room and just like light up the entire room. I can do that, but I don't have to. I can absolutely sneak into a room and not be noticed and make myself small. And I do that at home. And so he will come downstairs after working in his office and he'll be like, babe, I missed you. I haven't, I haven't even heard your voice today. I haven't talked to you all day. And I'd be like, but we were in the same house. Like, I, I've, I've been here. I don't understand. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, right, but we haven't conversed. And I'm like, oh, is that normal? So there were so many coping mechanisms that I had picked up that were just a normal part of the way I interact with the world that I didn't realize I could or should change. We'll be right back. On Going Through It, our guests talk about the passions and decisions that impact them most. You can find similar stories on MailChimp's Bloom Season, a digital resource offering actionable insights for small business success. Throughout these episodes, I'll be introducing you to a few of the entrepreneurs featured in Bloom Season. Anytime someone goes to Ghana, you tell them to bring you back Shay. Bring me back Shay and dry fish. You know. <laughs> Meet Abana Boma Achimpong. She first started making skincare products as an act of self-care during her time as a public school teacher from her stash of Shay collected over the years. My name is Abna Buama Chumpong. I am the founder and CEO of Hanahana Beauty. We're a consciously clean skincare beauty brand. Our mission is around how do we bring a level of humanity into the beauty space? We started with our most famous, our Shea Body Butters. But on the other end, we look at sustainability going from the producers we source from all the way to our communities and customers. Abena turned her passion into her business after receiving lots of product requests and encouragement from her family and friends. And like Abena, Hana Hana Beauty is also firmly grounded in its Ghanaian roots. The name was actually inspired by my dad. He told me Hanahana, which is a slang tree dialect. I had never heard the name before. And he was telling me that Hanahana means something that's smooth, something that's malleable, something that's flowing. And so it just fit. Similarly, Abana's evolution into entrepreneurship was a natural progression. 
As a kid, we would go to Ghana. I would come back and I would have rocks that I collected from the beach and shells and literally just like paint it with clear nail polish and sell it on the side of the street. When thinking about scaling her business, there was one very key element at the center of her model. When I decided to actually go back to Ghana and source Roche, I did a lot of research around fair trade because the mission at the time that I wanted to set was disruption within the beauty space. And I felt that fair trade was the disruption. After connecting with a women's cooperative in Ghana who would supply the raw shea, Abena got to work creating a business that considered not only her customers and the environment, but also the people who were part of the process. I really started thinking about sustainability in a new way because it was like for me to help sustain them means that I as a brand need to be intentional around our strategy and growth so that we can continue to buy and scale the buying also from them. So for us, it's paying two times the asking price for raw materials, as well as creating access to healthcare and optimization of production. Abana is a long way from her first career in education. But some similarities remain in her work. I've been really always focused around what does it look like to help people in the way that they want to be helped. Learn more about Abana Boama Achimpong and other entrepreneurs at MailChimp.com slash Bloom Season. And now, back to the episode. Going back to the conversation you had with your pastor friend. I have to imagine you didn't change your mind overnight. So what happened or what went through your mind in the days and weeks afterwards? There were a series of things that happened for me. And one is beginning to imagine joy as opposed to imagining unhealthiness. My first like joyful moment that I imagined was my husband doing something goofy, because I'm the serious one, he's the playful one, and imagining a tiny version of him. I always feel a a little, I don't know what the word is, it's not guilt, but I feel like my feminist card might be stolen. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, and after that, sort of my own moments then started to happen, right? So apart from my husband, I started imagining taking my child to a library for the first time. Or I imagine taking them to a park for the first time. I have started to imagine what could be good. And when I did, it continued to light me up inside. And so I began to then go back to what my friend said, right? Which is that I get to be the mother that I want to be. And that really opened me up to, gosh, here's the things that I could do, and here's the things we could do together, and here's the things I could teach, and here's, you know. I know. But there is a part B. (laughs) I want to be. Tell me part B. I really want to be honest about part B, Ashley, which is that I also, because I was fully adult, (laughs) because I had been married for eight years, I also really knew myself. Yes. And I knew that there were certain expectations around motherhood that I would not be able to fulfill. And so I had a multiple conversations with my husband about what it would look like for him to be my partner in raising a child, because there were going to be things that I was not good at. 
one of the things I knew I would not be good at is routine. I am terrible with routine. I have never been good at it. As soon as I make one, I break it. Same. You know, like I I had to accept that in my head, I'm a planner, but my execution is lacking. And so if clothes were going to be washed every week, my husband was probably going to have to do that. Not because I don't care about my child having clean clothes, but because I wasn't going to know what day of the week it was until he was out of underwear, right? Because I'm never going to be the mom who washes every Sunday. It's not going to happen. My husband, even now, is in charge of bath time. I have maybe given my child a bath once. (laughs) I was going to try and make the number higher. Now, when he was an infant, right, I gave him a bath far more often. But since he's become a little boy and going to school, my husband is responsible for bath time because I'm not giving that child a bath every night. Every night? I know. At the same time? Same time, too. Oh, every no. Night. No. <laughs> I don't stand a chance. So my husband had to, I don't want to say that he had to accept it, right, because he wasn't in any way resistant But I needed him to hear me. I needed it to really land that I understand fully what I bring to the table as a woman and as a potential mother, but that there were going to be a whole lot of things that he was going to have to do as dad. Oh, yeah. Or else I was going to be unhealthy, right? If the expectation was that I suddenly become a new person, this was not going to work. But if I could be me, if I could be the mom who invites spontaneity, if I could be the mom who lets him breathe a little bit, if I could be the mom who could interrupt the routine, who gets to make things fun, right? If I can be that mom, let's do this. My husband really likes routine, like too much. But in raising a kid, it actually really works for us because routine makes him feel comfortable. And so him getting up to wash the clothes once a week and to give the baby a bath every day, that brings him life, right? In a way that I would feel like I'm dying inside. And so it really actually allowed us to sink into who we are, like my pastoral friend said, right? As opposed to trying to recreate some sort of societal expectation around what marriage should be and what it should look like. In fact, I would actually say that my husband is probably the primary parent. There's another question I wanted to ask you specifically about making this decision, which is how did Blackness figure into it? The question is so extraordinarily layered. And the truth is the first question that I asked myself wasn't about my child and their Blackness as much as it was about me and mine. Mm. So I'm the one who has to get prenatal care. I'm the one who will have to deliver. Am I putting my life at stake for the sake of having a child? Right. And I knew this is so like extraordinarily privileged, but also a reality. I knew that I needed really good insurance because I needed to be able to make my decisions about whether or not I liked the doctor, about whether or not I liked my prenatal care. I want to be able to go to classes where I was respected, where people were progressive. So that was the first thing, 
right, is will I receive care as a Black woman? Then the questions all around my baby were so layered. Yeah. And as is always the case, hopefulness and terror in some ways, now this is a very like theoretical, Ashley, and I want to acknowledge that. In some ways, having a Black child, having a child of color is resistance in America. Mm. Because you are choosing to continue the legacy of Blackness. You are refusing to let white superiority win. You are not going to be stomped out. You are not going to disappear. This legacy of Blackness will continue. And that's a beautiful thing. It is. But it's also terrifying. And so uh, the, the way that this looked for my husband and I was how do we create the greatest amount of protection possible? So my child was born in a city that is very white and leaned conservative. And we knew that we were not going to stay in that city. We knew we were going to move because we could not let him be raised in this very conservative, predominantly white place. And so we moved cities. We paid attention to the houses. We looked at the school district. We looked at census records. I say all of that to say that my husband and I were committed to protecting him in every way that we could. Absolutely. If you could talk to the version of yourself that was in between that conversation with your friend and deciding to have a kid, what would you tell her? It's going to be okay. Because that was my greatest fear, that I would not be okay, that my child would not be okay, that the world we would create would not be okay. Yeah, being able to tell her, it'll be, it'll be okay. Having a child, will like, it'll be okay, but I could hang out with my husband for the rest of my life and really be okay. Yes. <laughs> could be, like, it'll be okay. Either way. Either way. Austin's story really resonates with me. While I know my own parents loved me and wanted me, I also know neither of them did a particularly good job being my parent when I needed them most. I can't help but worry that I'm somehow destined to do the same. And of course, nobody knows the future. Whether or not I'd be a good parent is yet to be known. I'll have to make this decision without any guarantees, just like everybody else. But at least I've had the chance to talk with someone like Austin, who reminds me that I don't have to parent exactly the way I was parented. And more importantly, that no matter what I choose, I'll be okay. Going Through It is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and MailChimp. Our producer is Emerald O'Brien. Our associate producers are Marina Hanke and Yinka Rickford-Anguin. Our managing producer is Camila Kashani. The show is edited by Aaron Edwards. Mixing by Davy Sumner. Original music by Mike Noyce and Davy Sumner with additional music from Epidemic Sound. Mara Davis is our booker. We had help from Stephen Key, Jason Richards, and Ari Saperstein. 
Legal Services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Desrochers. Our executive producer is J.N. Barry. Our production partners at MailChimp Studios are Julie Douglas, Sasha Brown, Christina Humphrey, and Caroline Albro. And a special thanks to my better half, without whom none of this would be possible. My assistant, Ariane Young. And thank you for listening. We know the range of experiences around this decision is so broad. And while we can't cover every story, we're grateful that we could bring you a few of them. So you want to craft an email marketing strategy, but you're not exactly sure where to start. Why not take a cue from Pack Up and Go? It's a surprise travel company that reveals their clients' destinations on the morning of their trips. The folks at Pack Up and Go designed a marketing plan that would both answer customer questions while also building their brand. Here's how they did it. Pack Up and Go started by using their customer-generated content to show off all these amazing trips that they offer building a loyal community of fans in the process. And then they used MailChimp's segmentation capabilities and email automations to send targeted messages that reached relevant audiences, like an automated campaign to new customers, reminding them to purchase PackUp&Go's travel insurance. With MailChimp's help, the marketing team at PackUp&Go has created a plan that works for them. Start crafting your email marketing strategy today at MailChimp.com.